You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Alan Chews is a book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Again, my pleasure, Rick. We have three very interesting books to talk about today. I think we're back in our in a more, much more literary mode. And positive. Yes. And positive <laughs> uh, today. Um, Joyce Carol Oates, Little Bird of Heaven. She's back in her uh, Eden County, New York. Yeah, it's um, it's a book that really uh, turned a light on an aspect of her work that I hadn't really thought about before. Maybe maybe other people have, but maybe I'm just slow. But you know, I've always thought of her, uh, you know, creating this up upstate New York, this mythical Sparta, New York, this uh, mythical uh, inhabitants of this region, uh, sort of like Faulkner's Yoknabatoffa Yoc- County, or Thomas Hardy's Wessex. In this new novel, Little Bird of Heaven, I realized she's writing as much like Dostoevsky as she is like uh, Hardy and, and, and Faulkner. I mean, this is her crime and punishment. It's, um, although the, the punishment really comes to the second generation, <laughs> the children of the, of the people involved in, in the, in the uh, crime. It's told in... Uh in, in halves and the different voices right. uh, of the children. Yeah, the first half is told by uh, a, uh, a woman. Uh, Krista, is it? Krista Deal. Krista you know, Deal. Bringing up her high school days. She's a kind of thin, blonde uh, girl, a kind of uh, light of weight and body. And... Um, you know, the, she plays basketball with a lot of the uh, girls from the Seneca uh, tribe from the from the reservation, and uh, gets pushed around, but is a bit of a fighter by the end of her high school days. But she becomes involved. Uh, well, her I should say her father is the suspect in a major murder in the county where she lives, in, in the town of Sparta, New York, and uh, she suffers because of it. I mean, she suffers. By, because she's estranged from her father. And uh, there's a lot of back and forth between father wanting to see her and the mother wanting to keep the father away from her. Uh, and uh, she really uh, does a lot of the... Uh, takes a lot of the punishment for this crime for which her father's uh, suspected. Uh, it's the murder of a woman named uh, Zoe... Uh, Cruller, who is married to um, a Seneca guy, uh, Zoe is a, uh, has a country band, and in fact, "Little Bird of Heaven," the title comes from a phrase in one of her songs. And she has a son named Aaron, and uh, he, he's a little bit older than 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 uh, Chrissy, Krista. But she's the young girl. Chris, Chrissy has her eye on Aaron. Uh, or she has her senses alerted by him, though nothing uh, happens between them uh, until one uh, one day when when she's 
taken off by one of the local bad boys onto an excursion into the train yards. They hang out in these empty boxcars. And uh, the, the guy gets her stoned, and, and he's about to rape her when uh, Aaron, the half-Indian kid, comes along and rescues Kristen. Um, and that, a kind of bond forms between them as a result of that, although nothing sexual transpires between Aaron and Krista. Uh, not until, I should say, the second half of the book, which, which is told from Aaron's point of view, uh, although the first half told by Chrissy is in first person, the second half about Aaron is told in the third person, so it's, it's kind of uh, an elaborate mechanism. Um, he describes the murder. He finds his mother's body. And it's, it's really a, a vivid scene. He, uh, I'll read a little. There was a blood-soaked towel tightly looped about Zoe's neck, knotted at the nape of her neck, for her scalp had been bleeding. Her skull had been cracked. I mean, she's really badly uh, beaten and murdered. Aaron finds that cor- her corpse naked and piles blankets on top of her to cover her body, but nothing can cover that image in his mind. And, and he's haunted by it, really, for the rest of his days. And uh, towards the end of the novel, uh, Krista comes back as, a narrator, uh, as the main character, and we discover uh, this bond that she's always felt for Aaron blooms into uh, an assignation. Um, I don't want to give any, away too many of the details, and if anybody hates to know what happens at the end of a novel, don't listen, hold your ears. But uh, it's not, you know, this isn't a novel where, you know, you, you want to know what happens. It's much closer to tragedy in that you want to know why what happens happens. So there is, uh, well, let me, let me backtrack and say, in, in, in Oates' novel, what I lived for were the main characters in upstate New York real estate salesmen. There is about an eight-page male orgasm that Oates describes. Eight pages, guys. Eight pages. Holy cow, boy, we can all learn something yeah. from her. Yeah, right. I mean, for, for most of us, it's about a paragraph. <laughs> um, and uh, in this novel, there is the most astonishing couple of pages on a, on motel sex that you'll ever read in in the work of any American novelist, high or low. Um, so, you know, it's the novel's worth reading just for that, but it's obviously worth reading for this amazing uh, depiction of American, basically proletarian or working-class life that Oates presents. I mean, she is the poet of the lumpen, American lumpen proletariat, and she, she celebrates the agony and the, and the misery in which most people uh, live when they're below the uh, radar of the middle class. One of the things uh, that she does quite well is to, um, using like these intense scenes of violence and Mm -hmm. sex, she really atmosphere mm-hmm. in in the suburbs <laughs> i mean it's not the most gothic mm-hmm. setting in the world yet she's turns these little yeah. you know tracked houses in into remote uh castle eeries where the passions run high <laughs> well i don't know I, I i disagree slightly with calling it gothic i mean that's why i invoke faulkner I mean, it's more for the violence is more faulknerian but it's all uh, but i also invoke dostoevsky i mean and finally i see in this novel she's writing about 
the, 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 the trauma of suffering violence as a, as a lower class American and, uh, and this, somehow the, the way in which this violence is expiated at the end, I'm not sure many of the characters gain, but the novel certainly gains. Maybe the novel is a place where they find redemption um, in the minds of the reader. But she, you know, she is, focuses on violence in American life in a way that very few serious American writers do these days. Uh, you know, most, most male writers sort of dance around it because they don't want to be known as macho violent exploitators. But um, she faces, faces it. She looks into the eyes of the, you know, the ugly scowl of American violence and describes what she sees. As does Thomas Pynchon in his own rather different manner with his newest book, Inherent Vice. This is a, a noir mystery from Mr. Pynchon, which is not what we expect, is yeah, it? Yeah, and I was really pleasantly surprised. I mean, the last couple of books, of you know, Henry James once described Tolstoy's work as loose baggy monsters, but... <laughs> <laughs> you know, after you know, after Mason and Dixon, I mean, you know, I love Gravity's Rainbow, but after Mason and Dixon, I just did not look forward to a new Pynchon novel very much. <laughs> Even though I faith, faithfully read all the way through these last couple of huge books, but this new one is—it's just—it's uh, as though he's gone to singing school. You know, it's a pastiche of, uh, as you say, a noir detective novel uh, set in L.A. To, you know, in the early late 60s, early 70s. And I, I just love the way he's composed it. It's, it, it, you know, kind of musical. Here, let me read the opening here. She came along the alley and up the back steps the way she always used to. Doc, this is Doc Spartello, who's the, the private eye. Doc hadn't seen her for over a year. Nobody had. Back then it was always sandals, bottom half of a flower print bikini, faded country Joe in the fish t-shirt. Tonight, she was all in flatland gear, hair a lot shorter than he remembered, looking just like she swore she'd never look. I mean, those are, those are lovely sentences that he lays down here. And they're not pretentious, they're direct, they, they just pull you into the story. It, it's a wonderful story, too. It's really, uh, it's an interesting uh, uh, tweeze on, on the noir setting. You have L.A., and you have a kind of a, a real estate conspiracy in the backdrop. You know, we, this is familiar Chandler-esque territory. Right, plus overlaid by this larger Pinchonian conspiracy of this uh, group, this kind of oriental menace uh, that is in charge of... the the drug trade for well, most of the world, it seems, <laughs> all focused on a big yacht that they have uh, anchored out in L.A. Harbor. And, and uh, I, I think that uh, this his prose, as you read, um, he's taken his prose and just with a, a, a slight, you know, sh sidestep shift mm -hmm. has really made it work beautifully for, for the noir genre. These one-sentence one par one paragraphs that you'll find throughout the book are, are lovely, and the, the paragraphs, they're not multi-page sentence, one-sentence paragraphs, but they're really quite beautiful, and I think it really gets into the flow. And I, I also think, too, he's done his homework with regards to Southern California and preserving the landscape. 
Yeah, and and I mean we we we're invoking musical, uh, you know, tonality here, but in fact, you know, he's always in, in interpolated little songs and lyrics and such in in almost all of his novels. Really works here. Yeah, um, <laughs> kind of even better than uh, the way J.P. Donlevy does it. Mm. Um, I, I, you know, he's got a kind of uh, uh, proto Beatles discography here. There's a kind of proto Beatles group that works its way through the novel. They're, they're characters who uh, make their mark by destroying whatever house they happen to be living in. <laughs> um, I, I, and he and he includes these songs that he's created for the novel. I mean, black surf music. I mean, <laughs> I mean that's funny the song the song soul gidget by a group called meatball flag i'll say it huh yeah let, let, let's hear it i like that one who's that strolling down the street high heel flip-flops on her feet always oh, got a great big smile never gets popped by a juvenile who is it minor seventh guitar fill soul gidget <laughs> who never never worries about her karma who be that signifying on your mama out there looking so bad and big like Sandra D in some Afro wig. Who is it? Soul Gidget. Surf's up. Soul Gidget's there. Get that patchouli all in her hair. Down in Hermosa, she's running wild. Back in South Central, she's just a child. Oh, uh, who is it? Soul Gidget. I mean, this is wonderfully comic stuff. And, and uh, not surprisingly, it's being shopped around for a movie. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, they were that ARC you have over there is is making the rounds in Hollywood, and I can I, I hope they do something with it. I think it could be really a lot of fun. A pinchin movie. I a mean, pinchin movie. It's kind of like contradiction in terms, isn't right. it? Right. <laughs> but I think you could do something with this. I mean, it's it's uh, it has enough uh, cohesion and. Yeah, you'd have to this. You could do this as a kind of proto musical, just shift the set slightly off to the right or left. <laughs> but um, I mean. I don't know. Maybe since the governor of California has now said he he wasn't entirely uh, opposed to legalizing marijuana, I guess he's thinking about the taxes that would bring in. Maybe this movie, soundstage filled with smoke, because <laughs> uh, everybody smokes in this novel. In fact, um, the you know um, Doc Sportello's uh, office, his uh, his uh, detective's office was it was it called lsd yeah lsd investigations is it right uh the whole book is just filled with uh, drugs and and sex and rock and roll that's a good always always an effective combination eh? maybe they can do they can do the smoke it edition with this where you read a page and then roll a joint <laughs> yeah i'm sure there are many uh of uh, games that you can make up for this i don't think the radio station uh is uh, either supports or uh, disavows this statement does it uh, no they 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 will will understand that we're two critics talking about an abstract literary work that has no existence in reality other than that of the reader's mind. And now you're going to light up a page of this novel? <laughs> I might use it to light up <laughs> something else. And speaking of novels that that would are books at least that benefit from uh, or at least suggest the uh, altered states of reality, uh, David Eagleman's Some. I, yeah, I, I, you you really like this. I, I wanted to like it a lot, but it, it just it kind of left me cold. I mean, it's got the makings of some real work of genius, right? He's a 
a neurological surgeon, right? Neuroscientist, yeah. Neuroscientist, uh, and he knows a lot. Uh, but the book reads like a hobby, you know, the, the way doctors have these hobbies. They invest in, you know, airplanes or they invest in shopping malls. And this this guy seems to have invested in writing these, uh, what is it, 40-some sequences about the afterlife, each one different from, from the next. Yes, it, it's a, I, I like it. Uh, it's an interesting form, I think, of uh, science fiction yeah. that... that you know, doesn't often get worked in, and because each of these is is essentially a very strictly controlled thought experiment, and in which mm-hmm. we set up the parameters and, and we mm-hmm. lay out the parameters at the beginning, and then mm-hmm. he works them out in short prose poems, yeah. and uh, it's reminiscent of there's a, a book by Stanislaw Lem in particular called One Human Minute mm-hmm. that that plays with some of these uh, same ideas, and. and one of the things I think that was that was interesting about this was when you set up these kind of uh, thought experiments, there's a certain kind of lack of affect to it so that he can talk about things that would otherwise be, you know, fairly upsetting to people. You know, these are visions of the afterlife. This is a, you know, direct assault on religion in many ways. Right. And, and yet he can do it in a way that's somewhat dispassionate. You know, everything that you everything that you say is true about it. I mean, you, that's an accurate description of the book. It just left me cold. Um, unlike, say, uh, Italo Calvino's uh, Invisible Comics or Invisible Cities, which are wonderfully wacky takes on, you know, what lives in between the ether between people or uh, imaginary cities that, that evolve uh, in the future. Well, uh, the... Uh, uh, now... Uh, he told I talked to Eagleman, and he cited this book, Invisible Cities, as uh-huh. a direct influence uh-huh. on, on this work. Yeah. And I've talked to a couple of other writers. I know uh, China Mieville and his latest book, The City in the City. Yeah. Um, he also cited uh, Calvino's. And I think this book is kind of at the seed. Is one of those books mm-hmm. that, uh, or Invisible Cities, that is, is a book that's a that's written in such a, a nicely engaging way that it draw inspires a lot of writers to go. On, people who read it, uh, to go in different directions with some of those ideas. Yeah, no, I, I think you're absolutely right about that, too. I just see this, I, I see some as, uh, you know, an interesting experiment that for me falls flat. It's, uh, you know, a writer friend of mine has a joke where, you know, so many times people have said, what do you do? And he says, I'm a novelist. And, you know, people are brain surgeons or real estate moguls. And they say, oh, I'd, I, I think I'd like to try that sometime. So he, he, he uh, sometimes goes up to brain surgeons and said, what do you do? And they say, well, I do brain surgery. He said, oh, I'd like to try that sometime. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you don't want an amateur brain surgeon working on you. And, and I honestly think you don't want to pay $26 for a book by an amateur writer. And I, this strikes me as very amateurish. Well, one thing uh, that, that interested me, too, and I was looking this, uh, this stuff up, was... Uh, in Invisible Cities was actually nominated for a Nebula Award, mm-hmm. Science Fiction Award, for the best novel of 1975, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's kind of, that that really interests me. I wouldn't think, wouldn't necessarily have guessed that the science fiction writers would have been willing to recognize somebody outside the genre. Yeah, I've been on enough juries to I, I can imagine how some of that conversation went. You know, mm. well, why is he poaching on our territory? And he's got a you know great success as a literary writer. Why doesn't he leave us alone? I mean, we're just as good as he is. Our writers are just as good as those writers and let's give it to one of our own not to one of them 
Yeah, and that's I also had some of those thoughts about inherent vice, and uh-huh. this is yet another example. And this sometimes can turn out very badly when when a literary writer decides to say, "Oh, I can write a genre fiction. Anybody yeah. can write genre fiction," right. and that doesn't yeah. always turn out to be the no, happiest that, truth. You certainly write about that. Yeah. I mean, James Jones tried to write a detective novel, didn't didn't do very well. Uh, but Pynchon is, I mean, he's celebrating. Southern California culture he happens to be working in the in the noir mm-hmm. uh, genre or doing a pastiche of the noir genre, and he has a lot of fun doing it. I think people who pick up the pension book will will be very quite entertained, no matter what uh, direction they're coming from, either the literary or the genre fiction yeah. aspect. I mean, you know, big pension fans will be thrilled to know that it's under 400 pages long. Right. <laughs> and it's, not pe- a, it's not a multi-month commitment. Right. And people new to Pynchon will find a delightful way of uh, gaining entry into his wacky imagination fill, and again, filled with music and, and pot smoke and, and, and pirates and just all sorts of wonderful things. It, re- it really is kind of like an inspired musical in his head, isn't it? <laughs> I've been speaking with Alan Chews. He's the book critic for NPR's All Things Considered, a writer and a novelist. His latest novel is To Catch the Lightning. His newest book is a collection of travel essays titled A Trance After Breakfast. We talked about Joyce Carol Oates' forthcoming novel, Little Bird of Heaven, Thomas Pynchon's novel, Inherent Vice, and David Eagleman's Sum. Thank you for joining me, Alan. Great pleasure, Rick. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.